So a couple of weeks ago, I got a strange phone call from a young man in a Lutheran church, and he was wanting to know if he could drop off uh, several books on Reformed theology, uh, saying that he was Lutheran, and so he didn't need these Reformed books. <laughs> that's, that's what I thought. I didn't get to meet him because he dropped them off when I wasn't there with no contact information. So it occurred to me, though, not only in the box were books on Reformed theology, but also Bibles. And I thought, how sad Martin Luther would be that this Lutheran did not think that he could also be Reformed and that he would not even want Bibles. This morning, as we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I'm glad that at the same time he knew that a PCA pastor and a PCA church would be interested in Bibles and books on biblically reformed theology and practice. And so let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 26 and celebrate the truth revealed there, the truth that was recovered in the Reformation, that we might do that before we read it. Let's pray. Our God, as we have worshipped you in song, we worship you in study, grateful for the profound freedom we have to hold Bibles in our own hands, translated into our own language, to have full and free access to them, to hear them read out loud in public, and then to have them proclaimed without threat to us. The only threat is that you might convict us and that we might be transformed by you. And what a glorious threat that is. Do that, we pray. Your Holy Spirit to come and bear witness that you would indeed drive your word deep into our heart and lives. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing him not to be worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Last week, the second half of Acts 25 introduced King Agrippa, arriving to welcome the newly appointed governor Festus. Festus had told Agrippa about Paul, and Agrippa was interested in hearing Paul for himself. And so Acts 26 recounts Paul's trial before King Agrippa. Listen to God's inerrant word. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
many a time. I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and to the Gentiles also I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I've had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer. And as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with him. They left the room and while talking with one another, they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's start with a couple of notes about King Herod Agrippa II. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. That's the one who had ordered the killing of all the boys to and under following the birth of Christ. His great uncle, Herod Antipas, was the one who beheaded John the Baptist and joined Pilate in the trial against Jesus. His father was Herod Agrippa I, who we read about back in Acts chapter 12 when he arrested Peter and killed James. And then an angel of the Lord struck him down. Oh, and the Bernice that he's traveling with was his full sister with whom it is understood that he had an incestuous relationship. So maybe he wasn't as bad as his father or grandfather, but certainly not the model of a moral man. 
What he lacked in morality, he made up for in pomp, which is usually how it works, right? Great immorality comes with great arrogance. Last week, we considered Acts 25, verse 23, when Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of this city, so that on one side of the room are all the high-ranking officials, the royalty and the political, uh, the military might, uh, the townspeople who have all the power and prestige. And on the other side of the room, Paul stands alone, a poor prisoner. But last week we saw that the word translated pomp is that Greek word fantasia, where we get our word fantasy or fantastic. Those things that are momentary and fleeting, they're showy, but it's only for a momentary interest of imagination, and then it goes away. At the time of the Reformation, there was also plenty of pomp and pageantry, along with gross immorality in the medieval church. Papal orgies, the Spanish Inquisition, burning of witches and selling indulgences. The Roman Empire and the medieval Roman church are now things that we read about in ancient history. But the gospel of Jesus Christ prevails. The Reformation brought the true gospel back to the people. And so Paul's trials have been recounted in these last couple of chapters of Acts. Chapter 22, he defended himself before the crowd. Chapter 23, he defended himself before the Sanhedrin. Chapter 24, he defended himself before Governor Felix the Cad. And then 25, before Governor Festus, both of those in a Gentile setting. But this trial is before King Agrippa, who was Jewish. He was uh, a king of a portion of Israel, of Palestine, appointed by Rome. So he's at least familiar with Jewish customs and the Hebrew scriptures. And so Paul speaks in that context. And his trial is recorded with quite a bit of detail, some of which is repetition to what we've seen before, but Luke considers it important enough that he repeats it. And so we'll listen again to Paul's defense. And Paul's defense, he begins, as he has before, with the testimony of his early life, the model Jew. And then verse 5, he says, "'They have known me for a long time and can testify.'" if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Now, it's interesting that Paul here calls the Pharisees a sect, for that is what they called Paul back in chapter 24, that he was the leader of a sect. The word that's translated sect is actually where we get our word heresy. The word most strictly means choice, And so it can mean simply choosing to follow a certain set of beliefs and practices, but can go so far as to mean choosing a set of beliefs and practices that is outside the bounds of what is the accepted set of beliefs. And so we use the word heresy rightly in that sort of reference of believing in a set of beliefs and practices outside the bounds of orthodoxy. That's the way Peter uses it. In 2 Peter 2, when he refers to false prophets and false teachers who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 11.19 when he says, No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. It's not always a bad thing for there to be differences, even some divisions among God's people. It distinguishes what is right and true. 
General George Patton is famously quoted as saying, if everyone is thinking alike, then someone isn't thinking. Sometimes thinking outside the box is crucial. Sometimes thinking again on long-held beliefs is crucial. Thinking for yourself about those things that were passed down to you is crucial. Not so that we can develop false thinking, but to rediscover truth and to embrace truth for ourselves. The Reformation was not about finding a new truth that had never been seen before, but the rediscovery of a truth that had been lost by generations of false teaching in the church. The pre-reformers and reformers were those who simply returned to the Bible and rediscovered the truth taught in the scriptures, which was markedly different than what was being taught and practiced by the church in the Middle Ages. No, you cannot buy salvation by giving money to the church. No, you cannot buy your way out of purgatory or pay your way out of purgatory for loved ones who have already died. And eventually they even saw that there's no such thing as purgatory. So no, you cannot earn your salvation by your works. God doesn't save because of our righteous works, but by the righteous work of Christ. As Martin Luther put it, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. The reformers were not trying to create a new religion. They were rediscovering the true Christian faith. They were not hotheads who just wanted to bring down the man, who wanted to thumb their nose at the establishment. They were seeking the truth revealed in God's word. And it was God's word that had been hidden from the people. They were reformers, simply seeking to reform the church by the recovering of lost truths. The church simply didn't accept reformation. And Paul is facing a similar situation by rediscovering the truth of the Old Testament that is now fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It turns out, Paul is saying, that the Pharisees have been wrong in their teaching and practice. Paul, like the later reformers, attempted to share the truth with respect to the leadership. But the leaders were unwilling to consider it and persecuted those who spoke the truth in love. We are, of course, to do just that, to speak the truth in love. But that doesn't guarantee we will be heard. It is simplistic to say that the reason the world does not believe Christianity is because of Christians. Yes, some Christians make it worse by teaching the wrong things and or by teaching in a wrong way, But the real reason that the truth is rejected is the reason the truth has always been rejected. We do not accept truth by our nature. We want to believe what we want to believe and certainly not accept the authority of another. Jesus perfectly spoke the truth in love and he was crucified. Paul, less perfectly but still exceptionally, spoke the truth in love and he was imprisoned. The reformers, even less perfectly, but still exceptionally, spoke of the truth in love and were persecuted for it. We tend to shoot the messengers because we're really trying to shoot the message. Once again, the wise words of Robert Kellerman, unhealthy systems want to kill the one who is pointing out the cancer rather than killing the cancer. This morning, we as Westminster Presbyterian Church in America in Butler 
are an unashamedly reformed church, holding to the truths of the scriptures, taught throughout the ages and rediscovered by the reformers and captured in historic creeds and confessions of the church, like the Westminster Standards. We are the reformed sect of the Christian church in Butler. And yet we must be the reformed church, always reforming according to the word of God. We must continue to kill the cancerous teachings and practices that will continually worm their way into the church. We must continually speak the truth in love to the world and to the church, lest we stop teaching truth or lest we stop thinking. In Acts 24, where the Jews accused Paul of being the ringleader of the Nazarene sect, Paul replied by saying, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law that is written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection. And so similarly, Paul says in verse six of our passage, and now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This next part of Paul's defense goes directly to the heart of his hope, the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 8 is especially an interesting question. He asks, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises from the dead? The word that's translated incredible is literally not faithful. Why should any of you consider it not faithful, unfaithful, incredible that God raises from the dead? And Paul asks this question, not just to Agrippa, but to all who are gathered, Jew and Gentile. Agrippa was more closely related uh, and connected to the Sadducees who rejected resurrection outright. But the question is a question that gets to the heart of the gospel. The resurrection gets to the heart of the question for all of us. And so it's from this question that Paul gives a shortened testimony of his own conversion in which he recognizes his past opposition to Jesus and his rescue because of the resurrected Jesus. Paul confesses that he persecuted followers of Jesus, that he tried to force them to blaspheme, and it became his obsession, a raging fury to persecute. In effect, Paul is giving a personal confession as an answer to why anyone would be opposed to God raising from the dead. Paul says he himself raged against it. His hardened heart became more hardened until the Lord revealed himself to Paul and transformed his heart, mind, and life. And so the question for us is, have you been transformed? Has the Lord transformed your heart, mind, and life by the resurrected Jesus Christ? Have you been regenerated? Has your heart been regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit accomplishing that redemption and applying it? Well, Paul goes then from defense to offense. Having defended himself against the false accusations made about him, he now presses forward to bring the gospel forward and call for a response to the gospel. It's not enough simply to present the facts of the gospel. We must also call for a response. The end of verse 20, Paul says, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. 
Notice that Paul is not saying we're saved by our deeds, but that our deeds prove our faith and repentance is real. That agrees with what James wrote, that faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And agrees with what Paul wrote to the Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith. This, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, revealed in the scriptures alone to the glory of God alone. So comes the saying, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. The gospel calls for repentance, made possible by the power of God. We can live a new life because of the power of God. We are set free from sin's curse and sin's power. And then the really good news is, is that since the gospel applies to every aspect of life and existence, that means that every aspect of life and existence can be set free from sin's curse and sin's power by the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. Broken people, broken situations, broken systems, All can be saved by the redemptive power of Christ. And the Reformation demonstrated this. Remember at that time, not only was the church broken, but the world was broken. The Middle Ages were called the Dark Ages for a reason. Now, the secular world wants to refer simply back to the Renaissance as the Age of Enlightenment, where light returned to the darkness that had existed in education, economy, medicine, art, technology, politics, and religion. But the Renaissance was a result of the Reformation. The secular world finds Renaissance rooted in humanism. And so today thinks that secular humanism is the religious belief system that will lead our world forward. Of course, there's examples of that failure everywhere today. Secular humanism has produced greater immorality, corruption, and harm. The true gospel of Jesus Christ with genuine conversion that leads to genuine repentance was what radically changed the world in the Reformation, as it did in the time of Christ and the apostolic age, and is the only hope as we move forward. So the apostle Paul is not so much on trial for his life, but he stands on trial for the life of Festus and Agrippa and all who are standing there. That's why he shares the gospel. And so he points back to Moses and the prophets who foretold that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead and proclaim light to his own people and the Gentiles. As we read earlier in the service from Isaiah 35, who foretold about the time of the Redeemer Christ. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. Jesus is the way of holiness. He opens blind eyes and ears. That was the hope of Moses and the prophets. That was the hope of Paul. That was the hope of the reformers, and it's still our hope today. People, situations, systems are blind, deaf, and lost, but can be rescued through Jesus Christ. Paul calls for this response. And well, he gets a response. Not quite that though. First, Festus responds by interrupting and saying, you're out of your mind. Paul, this 
great learning is driving you insane, right? When we, when we teach and practice the gospel, many will look at us like we're nuts, right? When we share our Christ-centered thoughts and practices about politics, parenting, medicine, marriage, economics, education, relationships, and religion, many will think we are out of our mind. But others will see that it is true and reasonable. Paul thinks Paul is out of his mind and needs to get a grip. And so he gets Agrippa. See what I did there? Paul presses Agrippa with the loaded question, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Now, King Agrippa is not new to rhetoric, right? He can hear a loaded question. And so he backs away from the question, do you think that in such a short time you could persuade me to be a Christian? Well, if time is the issue, Agrippa, let's get together. We'll talk some more. But Agrippa is really now just trying to get out of the room because he knows that everything Paul has just said is true, but he dare risk, not risk being converted. Remember two chapters back in 24 when Paul was talking to Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And the response from Felix, Felix was that Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Well, the same thing is happening now to Agrippa. And like we saw with Felix, it is never convenient to be converted. To have your life completely changed radically transformed, to have everything flipped upside down, to surrender to the lordship of Christ, it is never convenient. It is never convenient to be converted, but it is so good. Do it now. That's what Paul says in verse 29. Short time or long, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may be what I am except for these chains. Isn't that a great line? I wish you could all be free like me, you know, except for these chains that I have on right now. Somebody want to do something about that? King Agrippa's response is to leave the room immediately and even to admit that Paul is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. And so Agrippa and Festus could set Paul free, but then they would have the Jews to contend with. And politically, that doesn't work for them. They're trying to do the establishment a favor. And so Agrippa tries to find the out by saying, well, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, I bet you could ask Paul and say, Paul, you want to be set free or do you want to keep going on to Caesar? And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to see that God's perfect providence comes in the sinful sending of Paul to Rome. Well, let's close and consider these two men and their responses. Festus rejected the truth of the resurrection on the basis of intellect. An intellectual person can't believe in such things as an actual resurrection. Sure, you can philosophically muse about an afterlife, but the the notion that Jesus actually was physically, bodily resurrected is preposterous. Mentioned this in Sunday school last week, but R.C. Sproul says, the unregenerate person will believe anything about God except that which has been clearly revealed in scripture or in creation. Isn't that great? The unregenerate person will believe anything about God except that which has been clearly revealed in Scripture or in creation. Festus rejects the resurrection by the pride of intellect, and so he perished. Agrippa rejected the resurrection on the basis of his position in life. If he were to be converted 
to be gripped by the resurrected Jesus Christ, he would lose his grip on his position, status, and rank, or at least risk all that. Agrippa rejected the resurrection by the pride of position, and so he perished. But notice that the pride of intellect and the pride of position are still deterrents today. Not actual intellect and actual position, but the pride of these things. For Paul says that what he is speaking is true and reasonable. Actual intellect, actual science, actual study and learning does not lead us away from Christ, but leads towards the truth himself. But then you have to admit that your intellect is really just a surrender to what has been revealed by God in his world and his word. It isn't that you're so smart that you have discovered anything. All you've done is to rediscover what God has revealed. Likewise, actual position does not lead away from Christ, but is given by God. God puts all people into their positions of authority. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Humble intellect recognizes that what we know is given by God. A humble leader recognizes that God has given them that position. There can be no pride when we live by faith, for we know that our faith in Jesus Christ is a result of God's prevenient grace. God's grace came first. Our faith follows that. And so let us live our lives in the same way that we received new life, by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And may the truth set us free. Amen.